Good morning. Many of you know that uh, we've been praying for Harriet Gray. Harriet Gray is our intern in children's ministry. Many of you know Harriet personally, and uh, therefore you know how precious she is to us. We've been praying for her visa. If you don't know, uh, Harriet is Scottish. She's from Scotland. I am one, one quarter Scottish, so I have this bond with Harriet. <laughs> we learned, uh, I learned Wednesday, Harriet learned Tuesday evening, uh, that her visa has been denied. And that grieves us, to be sure. We will receive written notification of uh, the details. Uh, she will not have to leave today or tomorrow. She'll be here certainly through VBS. She'll be here long enough. We are confident that uh, we'll be able to give her a loving send-off. And uh, we wait that written confirmation to, uh, to learn the reasons and if there are any options. But we can continue praying. And when we have prayed so much, well, we see God's hand. And uh, even though the result, sorry, Harriet. I'm just emotional anyway this morning. For some reason, maybe it's some of these songs we sing, but um, we see the hand of the Lord in those things that at this point are not what we were praying for. And, uh, and so we continue to look expectantly. And that's true for me, even though I say it through tears. Now... Joshua, uh, judges, I mean, and Samson, not Tarzan. <laughs> you, you've heard the joke, haven't you, about the pastor who, <laughs> he was uh, on his way home from church with his wife, and he, of course, every, every pastor gets a good read off of his, his wife, uh, on the message, and he he was curious to know what she thought of his message, and she seemed a little slow to to respond to his question, and uh, he said, "Really, I didn't you think it was good?" And she said, "Well, yes, it it really was good, except that you kept saying Tarzan instead of Samson." <laughs> Today we're in Judges fifteen. As we continue in our series, Samson's Desire, um, let me read Judges of chapter 15. Uh, After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? 
Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. And then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he's taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after this, or after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we've come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I've done to them. And they said to him, We've come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that is caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put, it, put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakorah. 
It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. Well, I've lived with this passage all week long. I've been so immersed in it. I've been really in another world. I've spent more time on this message than in any message as I can remember in the 14, 15 years that I've been here and in the years before that. It was uh, one morning this week, Shelley told me she'd been reading through Judges. And on Thursday, she exclaimed, I just read chapters 19 and 20. I don't think this should even be in the Bible. Why do you think Shelley said that? Why do you think when I read this, I'm just going, what? How do we relate to this? I'll tell you why she said that and why we struggle with this. Why, even yesterday, late in the day, on my day off, I, I, I've just finally quit. I was exhausted. Last night, I fell asleep in my chair at 7.30. I woke up at 9.15 and went straight to bed and slept until 5 this morning. When we sang... Speak to me, Lord, speak to me. Tears were running down my face. I think the book of Judges itself tells us every di everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Shelley brought that up with me in the morning before I left for work. She said, the very last verse of the book of Judges says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But you see, Shelley can say that when she says, this shouldn't even be in the Bible. She can say that because she has another pair of eyes. I struggle with this, and I hope you struggle with it, because you and I have another pair of eyes. And we have another pair of eyes because the book of Judges tells us this. The people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. We have the eyes of the Lord. Our culture our world does everything right in their own eyes. We live in a culture and a world that doesn't see it the way God sees it. Doesn't look at things with his eyes. Doesn't weep over the right things doesn't rejoice over the right things. 
And we can easily be absorbed in that and start to think, it looks right to me. It looks right to me just as it seems to look right to everybody else. Everybody else is uh, comfortable with it, and I'm comfortable with it too. And there are some times when we read certain things and it just strikes us so oddly because we have the eyes of God in Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. We can think God's thoughts after him. We have his spirit. Today is Pentecost. Today we are reminded that the spirit of God was poured out upon his people. And in many ways, our lives are kind of like Samson. I mean, if you read the book of Judges or you read the four chapters on Samson, we get a snapshot of a life. Sometimes we lose sight of the scope of our lives, how our stories might be written, because we're down in the details, we're down in the breath-by-breath moments of daily life. How many moments that we maybe strike out in rage and anger instead of being under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit, we, the people of God, we who have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have that spirit, and yet uh, we can grieve it, as Paul writes. We can quench it, as Paul writes. Often, we have the power. We're just not under the power of God, because he has given us that freedom. He has given us a will to love him, to submit to him, to see things the way he sees them. The book of Judges is concerned with the answer to one question again and again and again, and that question is this, who is going to lead Israel? Who is going to lead the people of God? The last judge, Samson, we're told, did what was right in his own eyes. Samson, the strong man, is a weak man. And we see it so clearly in this chapter. Oh, we see feats of incredible strength, but it only offsets and magnifies the weakness of the man himself. He's a man of awesome physical strength and astonishing spiritual weakness. And why? Because he has everything, eyes for everything, but God. If we have the eyes of God, we can see things that others can't see. You could talk about a moral compass or a conscience. 
But when we have Christ in us, we see things that others don't see, or we should see things that others don't see. And sadly, it's when we're weak, and he is strong, not when we're strong, and he is weak. God's strength is mightier than my weakness. That's a big duh, right? Like, I didn't know that? Yeah, but isn't that the irony? He's mightier than my weakness? Yet when do we recognize that? When do we recognize our weakness except in defeat? What we need to realize is that when we're weak, he is strong. When we realize he's mightier. So often when we're weak, we're trying to be stronger in our own strength. We're trying to do it in our own power, in our own wisdom, in our own mindset. We're not thinking his thoughts after him. His values are not ripe and rich in our heart. His spirit is crowded into a corner, a crevice. So in this passage, I see three big weaknesses, and I wanted us to look at them. Three, deep, big, three big departments. There's so much that could be said about any one of these chapters that, uh, that we choose to see Samson and see what's, what's happening. But I wanted to try and relate this to our own relationship with the Lord. Our own presence in the world as someone that God has equipped with his spirit to make a difference. Someone he's raised up in our own world. And I see three weaknesses that greatly characterize Samson and greatly characterize us. And maybe if we see our weaknesses, we'll turn to the Lord in ways that will enrich our presence God's presence in us, in our relationships. Um, in our presence for the Lord. The first is weakness in the love department. <laughs> weakness in the love department. And we see this in the first three verses. And, I, you know, I'd love to see us let God defeat us in this area, that his strength might be mightier than our weakness. This is the, this, this is the sad end to a not-so-great marriage, and we saw that at, in chapter 14. And so, as you may recall from the previous chapter and last Sunday, um, Samson's, he's, he's bunged things up pretty good. He's really messed things up things up in this marriage. It wasn't a marriage that he should have entered into in the first place. But, uh, you know, if you're going to do something, do something right. But he does it all wrong. Um, he decides, he cools down, and he decides to return to his wife. And he takes a young goat. It's kind of a, honey, uh, I brought you a young goat. 
And the father-in-law meets him and says, you know, I thought, I thought you truly, genuinely uh, hated her. I mean, everything that you did said, I hate you. And uh, we can infer we can infer from other things that in this situation, the father sought to protect her honor, the family honor, and so he gave her to another member of the wedding party, one of the companions. And because, I mean, everything that Samson has said and done is I'm finished with you and he has left and some amount of time has transpired because in chapter 15, now it's harvest time. But he comes back and he brings a young goat and the father meets him and will not allow him to enter the inner chamber and he is furious. And, and I, I think some of us guys can relate to this. You know, sometimes uh, we are not very good communicators. We are like cavemen. And uh, we're not really good in relationships when it comes to dealing with... Uh, you know, our vulnerability, our bruised egos and pride. And we certainly, we see that in Samson. So now he comes back and it's a tender moment. In fact, what's powerful to me here is that, you know, Samson is this kind of Tarzan figure. He's this caveman kind of guy. But we get a glimpse of the man inside here because he obviously has a conscience up to this point, do you know what a sociopath is? A sociopath is someone who doesn't have a conscience, doesn't experience guilt. And we see that Samson, he knows better. In fact, when he's enraged because he's been rebuffed by the father-in-law, what does he say in verse 3? This time, I shall be innocent. He knows that what he did was wrong. He overstepped the line. He, he let his anger get the best of him. He did things in the wrong way. And so now he's come back and he's brought a young goat. And he wants to let this gift apologize for him. Guys do that. I've done that. We want gifts to do the talking. And he says, honey, sweetheart, I've brought you a goat. Everything should be fixed now. But what is beautiful is that inside we do see that there's a tender-hearted man who recognizes that he's done wrong. And he's trying to make amends. You know, there are some insights here for us. Just a couple. Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. For reconciliation. To make things right. Is a good motive 
but you can see that Samson gives up on it very quickly. I mean, he's not in it for the long haul. And sometimes we do substitute gifts for really a right heart. And right actions require a right heart. A stretch of wrongs is not reversed with one step in the right direction. And it's kind of like, (laughs) are you kidding me? You're not going to accept my gift? Which tells us that sometimes we want to do things and we want reconciliation on our terms, which is not right-hearted. There's really not a repentance there. And sometimes then we use the person's reaction that we have wounded and hurt as a justification for more wrong. I know that uh, Samson isn't a great example, but uh, we do see some real dynamics in personal relationships here. It does take two. But he rejects the father's explanation, and you can hear in the father. I mean, it sounds foreign to us, but the father is trying to do some things right here. He says, look, what about my daughter, my younger daughter? Because fathers make all the arrangements in these things. And she's even more beautiful, Samson. Look, I'm sorry that I've wronged you. I'm trying to make it right. But Samson says, hey, there's only one way here, and you've wronged me. And on my terms, that now justifies me. The Christian life is uh, one in which, you know, we can just, if we're not under the power of the Holy Spirit, it's the reactions of others that really expose our weakness. Todd Atkins says, I don't know about you, but it's a lot easier for me to act like a Christian than to react like one. And boy, that just parallels this, and it parallels us. It parallels me. You know, I can have my devotional. I can have, really, the mind of Christ, so to speak, just influencing like music in my head and my heart. And then you get in the car and you're driving along and what happens? You know, somebody cuts you off. Or The other day I was trying to merge onto the freeway. And I was really accelerating. I was actually going faster than the person that was approaching in that lane to get ahead of them. And they sped up. They sped up. And I didn't even realize it. I didn't even see him in that blind spot. And all of a sudden, we were like touching metal. And my reaction was not spirit-filled. You know, the good thing, and I really mean this, is that we the response time, As you walk with Christ more and more, the response time is quicker and quicker. And immediately I just, I felt the the shame of what had possessed me, you know? But really, we could have, I could have reacted like Samson. We react like Samson. And we could have gone down the freeway, which brings me to the next point. Weakness in the justice department. 
We could have gone down the freeway involving a cycle of revenge. In verses 4 through 13, we see a cycle of revenge begins with Samson's justification. This time I shall be innocent. And if we dissect the, this, we see the anatomy of emotional drama. We can see it in teenagers as adults. Sometimes we can't see it in adults as we ought because it's the same drama throughout life. First of all, Samson sees only one side to this. He just sees his side, and we see that. He doesn't hear the father's explanation. This reconciliation is on his terms. He doesn't come with a right heart, and so everything's got to be his way. He generalizes He's speaking to the Father, but then he retorts to them. He doesn't see just the hurt in terms of the action of one person. He sees the entire people of the Philistines, and he takes it out on all of them. He blurs the action of one with the many. And sometimes we exaggerate that when we're so subjective that it's, you know, I only see it my way. I don't see it your way. I have no heart, no compassion, no empathy, no sense of, you know, even the fact that what you did, I've done before. I've done in kind or in principle. I see your human weakness. I know it myself. I know God's grace. And therefore, I have a softness towards what you've done, even though it's wounded me. There's a place in my heart to appreciate where you went wrong so that I don't go wrong the same way. He turns personal hurt into license for unequal retaliation. When he burns the standing grain and the orchards, he's wiping out the food supply of the Philistines. Now, maybe if this is a holy war, you know, I can understand that in some way. But just in terms of the way we're to treat one another, I really, I really wrestled with that. And when you wound my heart, or I wound yours, I mean, really, is the ego and the pride and the wound of personal hurt a good measure of justice? Because who's more important than me? And when you wound me, that throws everything out of whack. It imbalances, it makes justice lopsided, and we see it here. And so, what do the Philistines do? They hold Samson's wife and father-in-law responsible. And they burn down their house with them in it. So, what does Samson say? He says, well, if this is what you do, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that, I will quit. We want to have the last word. 
That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. And it doesn't work here that way. He wants the last word. He goes and hides in a cleft of the rock of Edom. The Philistines march up into Judah. And now Judah is saying, where did this come from? What did we do? Oh, well, Samson did it. We want Samson. So they go with 3,000 men to Samson, and they say, we're going to arrest you. There's all kinds of complications to this. It's pitiful and sad that Judah has become apathetic toward the presence of the Philistines. As uh, Brian mentioned even earlier at the outset, See, what I have trouble with here is just the way, this, it's like the Wild West. Leviticus, God has already given his law. Do not seek revenge. Love your neighbor as yourself. These were the laws that were supposed to move with them into the land, and they were to drive out. But now they have gotten engaged with them. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was to control, you know, responses. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Repay no one for evil, writes Paul. Do not avenge yourselves. Leave it to God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Justice. Are we just in how we treat others? Generally, we're not. And more than that, in Christ, we're to be gracious. A third thing, weakness in victory. And this is really telling here. I could have started with this. In verses 14 through 20, and again, in all these areas of weakness, I would rather be defeated by God than than in my own weakness, experience defeat, and turn to him in defeat. And it takes that for Samson to turn to him. And the crazy thing is, is this is the summit. This is the pinnacle of Samson's faith, at least as it's reported. And it's the greatest prayer he ever prayed. But it only comes when he is totally defeated, not by any human enemy, he's defeated by his own mortality, by his own weakness, because he has no power over the fact that he is a human being and he can't beat the elements. He's isolated, he's in a wilderness place, there's no water, and he's dying of thirst. He's faced with his own mortality. I have to admit now, I'm just a human being. This could be my end. What does it all matter now? What have I spent my life on? What will it all mean? 
And this just after, he banged his chest and said, I have defeated them. He even sang a song. It was a a ditty about how he used a jawbone to create a heap of Philistines. The jawbone of a donkey. It's, It's really pretty witty because a donkey sounds just like the word for heap. I made a heap with a heap, and I did it myself. And it's only in his mortality that he acknowledges that it was God's hand that made it possible, that spared him. I had to think that at some point, maybe maybe the Spirit continued to, to empower him because he had not cut his hair. He was still in that respect. I mean, that's the only thing that professes to anyone else that he is a man of God that I can detect. And God's Spirit stays with him. And God's Spirit empowers him against the Philistines. And I would say in righteous ways that contradict God's own will. But maybe he continues to empower him because he keeps expecting that at some point, maybe Samson will allow that that spirit to influence other areas of his life. What about your life? What about in your ugliest victories, in your own strength? Would God withdraw his spirit from you? Or does he still have greater things, better things, bigger things to do in your life? I think so. Read your life like a, like a story. You'll see things in there that you think should not be in the Bible. It's in defeat that we turn to the Lord. I have not forgotten 9-11 and how the churches were clogged, clogged with people turning to the Lord. And his own people with his spirit upon them are so casual And too often, like Samson, we turn to him not in victory. That's when we crow, I did it. We turn to him in defeat. I just, I know I'm, I'm gonna, going long. I just want to put this in perspective very quickly. When we come to Judges, just imagine we're marching along and we have come to the, this bank of a river. And behind, we've been led here. Moses led us. And now Joshua. But now at this river, we come to Judges. And it's a, it's a bridge that's crumbling before our eyes. On the far bank is Samuel. And on beyond Samuel is David. We've come to the f- near bank 
looking to cross, but the judges, this bridge is crumbling. We're looking for a prophet greater than Moses to lead us. And we're seeing this bridge crumble. Samson rebuilds it. King David rebuilds it, and we march on, and now we're looking not only for a prophet greater than Moses, we're looking for a king greater than David. And that prophet and that king, that leader is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. Who can do that but in the power and might of God? Paul says, my grace, God speaking, he says, God told me my grace is sufficient for you. Not your power, my grace. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, said Paul, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that word rest is beautiful because it's the word to be quartered in. In other Greek literature, it's used of troops that take up residence in pedestrian homes. It's like they come into a village and they're quartered in the houses of people who are not military. Jesus needs to take up quarter in our hearts, and he does that when we recognize our weakness and turn to him. Philippians 4, 6, 7, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will, which surpasses our understanding, will guard your heart. And there's the picture of a sentry. It's almost an extension of that metaphor that when troops quarter in a residence, Jesus Christ quarters in my heart. When he is strong and I am weak, and when he is sentry, my heart knows peace peace that's out of this world. You see, when we pray for the world to be changed, we say, God, change this world. We're praying to him to change our own hearts. Will you stand with me? You know the drill. Oh, that sounds so wrong. I'm, 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 a little, running a little long. And I know people will say, hey, it's okay. You can run long, but we can't because we have the children over there and parents got to get their kids. And I'm mindful of that. We have so many wonderful volunteers. So if I go long, we're affecting them. But I just want you to know you can come and pray with us. Maybe the Lord has spoken to you this morning. He's been speaking to me all week. Recognize your weakness. Maybe you want to pray about that with us. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, you know, Lord, that uh, we are weak. You are the strong one. You're mightier. And we know the power in our lives when we surrender to you. Help us to be more ready to do that day in and day out that we might see the beauty of your triumph and your power in our lives. We desire that, Lord, because we see your beauty in all that you touch. 
In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.